Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. In this episode, Jonathan and I are going to do a wrap up of season two. And so we're going to just go over some of our aha moments and um, maybe tell you what some of the highlights are. So Jonathan, I don't know, do you have any starting thoughts about season two? Should we, I mean, should we just really quickly recap? I mean, we started the season with uh, Rajen. Rajen's highlight was really, you know, experiencing the other Um I thought uh, if Ifosa and uh, Jacob talked a lot about uh, the problems with philanthropy or the or the, the the ways that philanthropy doesn't work, they solve problems that they can measure, but that they don't solve the underlying issues. So they talked about the pull and how better philanthropic work could could show up. I loved what oh I might have screwed up Tiva Tava Tiva Tava Tava. She, I mean, she said, and this you know I will never forget the statement she said. Uh, billionaires, billionaires are not going to save us, and I thought that was absolutely fantastic um, and true. Like it's not enough. Philanthropy is not enough. Government has to be there. You know those kind of things. Um, but then I think you and I both agree in our conversations that Guy Standing nailed it. He changed my thinking. There's beliefs that I carried into that conversation that he just crushed, um, and and you know in a, in a very positive way and in a very light way. He was like, no, not how it works. Um, and I, so there's going to be a lot we're going to talk about there. I, I loved um, uh, Robert Frank's uh, uh, work on the progressive um, consumption tax. I, <laughs> I've been studying this stuff and looking at it for years and years and years. Never heard of it before. Um, just shows you that there's, there's lots of rocks left unturned, lots of, lots of brilliance that we could talk about. And then finally, the idea of a better capitalism that were brought to us by... Um, Paul Noten and uh, Aaron Hedges, I thought was uh, was was also great, and how they introduced the individuals like Christ and Ayn Rand and 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 Adam Smith, and they and they sort of painted them with both sides instead of painting them with with the 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 other. Like this is why we hate them. Well, they also said this other stuff that we should also know about, and I thought that that was, I thought this is a really good way. Just reviewing this would be a good way to start, um, but. I want to leave it in your park for the for the big question or the big first takeaway. <laughs> the big first takeaway. Um, well, I guess for me, like, and, you know, when we were having a little conversation off camera before, you know, you were like, oh, Terry, this is how you structure your thinking. But like, it is kind of how I structure my thinking. Like, I kind of tend to go from aha moment to aha moment. And it's as if I have like these, you know, kind of thought structures that make the world make sense. And for me, what's really exciting is like when some of that shifts and it gives me almost a better explanation of my way of seeing things. And so for me, I guess, you know, I had like three major aha moments this season. And, you know, I'm glad you you brought up Rajan um, because I really that was the first thing for me. And, you know, especially working in with tenants and working in low income housing I find it's so easy for me on the investor side of things to get stuck really in my perspective, right? And to not realize that the person on the other end of those exchanges who seems to me to be acting in like not even in their own best interest 
and be acting in a way that makes no sense to me like to just stop and say okay well actually this is not a product of stupidity it's just that they have a different set of like base problems and base assumptions that they're solving for and they're solving for it in a logical way given the place that they're sitting and you know so I think that now forces me to you know every time I interact with people like think about okay what is their story like why what problem are they trying to solve for and how is this behavior a solution to an equation that I don't even see and then it's a question of thinking like what's the equation you know you're you're, you're being you're you're embracing mindfulness like this is not <laughs> not judging where someone else is coming from like you know what it is I, I think that's and it's you know we all do it we all jump right in and we say, well, why would they make that choice? That's 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 dumb. Obviously, if they just you know paid this light bill, their lights would be on. It wouldn't be a big problem, right? Um, but yeah, we, we're all subject to these kind of problems. What what? So what is it? Do you remember what he said about? Um, he, he talked about stopping the division. Um, you know how we all, and especially maybe especially in the U.S., but I think probably everywhere, um, there's there's an argument that's always ongoing, and in the U.S., it's between the right and the left. And it's judgment, judgment, judgment. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Whereas we'd have a lot better understanding if we started with trying to bridge that social division. Um, do you remember what he said about how to do that? Well, I think for him, it was a question of curiosity. Like, I remember that he told us, um, you know, obviously in the Indian context, I think he did like a, you know, cross country train trip where he was, you know, traveling in the second class carriages and meeting all of these people in villages and that that for him was a real shock. Um, and I realized that, you know, in my own life, like that is my professional every day, because as I manage those properties, like I am walking into those people's homes all the time and I'm interacting with it. And so it's a question of just not approaching that interaction like, you know, better because maybe you're in a certain place on the social hierarchy, but just to be like, no, like, you know, s something is creating this reaction on the other end. And if you try to understand what are they solving for? Um, hopefully, you know, we managed to bridge some of those gaps that are like, unfortunately, like just widening now. And I think there are ideological gaps, but I think there are also important economic gaps, which maybe we're going to get to when we talk about, um, you know, guys standing a little bit more, but that like bridging some of those economic realities when, you know, sitting after COVID, um, uh, you know, the investor class, ha ha you know, okay, it's a data point. Gas is more expensive, but like, no, for some people that's existential. And, you know, like it's, that's, you know, an important baseline thing to, to be mindful of. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, what was the, what was the next thing that was like the aha moment for you? Yeah, well, it was very guy standing heavy for me. Um, and, you know, like I, I don't remember if it, I mentioned that on camera in the episode or if it was afterwards, but like for me, really uh, his vocabulary was just uh, giving me the ability to name things that are going on in front of my eyes, but that I had no vocabulary for. So, I mean, just very simply that, you know, shifting class structure from, um, you know, the elite to the salariat to the precariat and, you know, framing the precariat in terms of no occupational narrative and this kind of like precarious, you know, economic precarity, but also being in the position of what he calls the supplicant. So where basically their um, standard of living has so much to depend on, uh, asking asking favors of people and you know again this is you know in French we'd say déformation professionnelle so like professional deformation but like like uh, 
you know, when your profession changes the way that you look at things. But like, definitely, when you're in the position of a landlord, you're constantly making those kind of decisions. Like, am I going to enforce the letter of the law on this one? Am I going to let this slide? Am I going to accept this file that's not great? Or is something going to push it into the direction that I'm going to consider this person? And like, that's completely the people who on the other end of that are really at the whim of the decision making of the gatekeepers. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that there was like a, that's like a third of the adult population. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember we talked about that globally? Yeah. That was global. Yeah, that was global. That was global. But like, definitely, I think in our, you know, North American context, like for sure, like, I mean, again, it, we all have slanted samples based on who we interact with, but like, I definitely, I would almost say, I feel like it's more than that. Um, but I mean, that's again, because of, of deformation professionnelle. So, do, but I mean, his, his solution to that was something that, that, you know, I've heard about for my entire life and I've always, you know, everyone I've heard about it from dismisses it. And he, even today, coming from the left of the political spectrum in the United States, it's still dismissed, which I found, and he said this, he said that, uh, you know, everyone on the right will always dismiss basic income, right? It's just against God or whatever. You know, it, 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 you're, basic income is against like basic fundamentals of capitalism or something like that, right? Um, so, so that's hopeless in convincing them. But he actually said that on the left, like the labor movement, people should have jobs. And so basic income goes against that. And so a solution that he had was this concept of basic income. And my and my and going into it for me, and this was the biggest aha moment in the entire season for me, was <laughs> and now as I'm reflecting on it, I feel like an idiot for thinking this. Um, I, this is really stupid. If you give somebody a basic income that demotivates them to earn their own to earn their own way, right? And he said, no, that's not, I mean, I remember his, I just, I can see his face. No, that's not human nature. Like if you give somebody something, it just, it gives them one step up and enables them to get a little bit more education, enables them to clear their head from the poverty. It enables them to do all the stuff that they can do to actually better themselves and their family for the next generation. And it was like, that's a solution. Why are we not embracing that solution? Um, and then he explained both of the right and the left argue against it for their own independent reasons. Uh, but it's silly. We should, we should, we should be embracing that in my opinion. No, and I think like you definitely bring up a good point with, you know, when I talk about like some of these things that like really like reframe the way I think, like I've had this sense for a while that this um, socialist narrative based on like basically the, the glory of the, of the union seventies, right. Um, is that there's like a segment of, of, people who are maybe more socially minded, who it sounds to me are really pushing in that direction. But again, it seems like a very outdated model. And, you know, I think when we look at the, let's say maybe the, the economic moment that we're in, right? And like, you know, that inspired me to read like a bunch of um, more historical stuff, perhaps more like in the direction of housing. But if you look at, you know, moving from an agrarian economy to the industrial economy to the what we're now in, which is the post-industrial economy, like we're not talking about factory jobs where people work at Ford Motor Company anymore, nope. you know, and that was like late 70s, the heyday of the welfare state and all that stuff. But like we've come through, you know, two or three decades of neoliberal cutting of that. But that's not accidental. It happened because like the basic economic, the ways in which we produce things in society have changed. And I think our models haven't caught up to that. So, you know, if I point to another like aha moment. And he, and he talked about the, ch the changing left, the, the, the fact that there's this old nostalgic left that wants that. And then there's also this young 
burn it down left. Like the, we need to have redistribution. That is the only solution. And he, he kept saying that we needed a, uh, oh, what was the phrasing? He said, we have a, we need a new, uh, a new liberal agenda. You know, we need, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it had a, had a couple pieces to it that were really important, but, but he said, you know, we're going to go the way of authoritarianism or we're going to have redistribution. And it's really either, or <laughs> not, not a, not a, not a pleasant set of options, um, yeah. um, one way, uh, but the other way is almost you know certain given the generations, given the the youth in the U.S. And I know I spot, I know that you're in Canada, so I have to uh, be a little bit more uh, circumspect on, on me saying that. But I think it's very similar, maybe. Well, I mean, we did just have the Freedom Convoy, right? So <laughs> I think there's a, you know, there's a, we have our own type of polarization. And, you know, I think we've now just got a new conservative leader um, who seems to be coming to the fore in Canada. He hasn't quite been crowned yet, but, you know, we're expecting that he will be. And then we have our, like, woke prime minister now kind of on the other end. And so there's this also just, like you know, kind of a wave of populism. And I mean, obviously, Canadian popul- populism is not American populism. It's not French populism. But there's definitely that current. And, you know, if I could say one thing, maybe to the, you know, the Trumpists on the one hand and like the Wokies on the other, um, it's, you know, we need to have respect for the equilibrium that we have built so delicately over the last 200 years. And, you know, wanting to burn it down in one way or in another way is maybe not respectful of the fact that like we have a train that's pretty much on the rails like it is failing some people there are divisions but it's not time to like blow the thing up because I think if we look around and make a list of everything that's right and then we make a list of everything that's wrong I think there's a lot more right than there was 300 years ago oh yeah yeah and 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 I think I mean we're I don't think we disagree on this but I, I would just play a little bit of devil's advocate in that if you are on the losing end of the post-industrial economy you don't it's a it's a privilege for us to say you know um we we shouldn't burn this down because if you're on the losing end right now you think that that's the only option and again going back to what rajen was saying you know you, we can't judge what you know their experience because their experience is their experience um and they may be wrong um we may be wrong and we, we kind of have to well, we go forward to the best we can, right? We, we go forward with as much information as we can gather and we go forward learning new things and then we make some decisions. And, and this is, you know, this is one of the things that Teva, Teva talked about was you go through and you, you, you try something and you don't get, you don't freak out and get angry and throw it away. You, you go, okay, some of this works, some of it didn't work. You tweak it, you fix it and you try again. And then some of it worked and some of it didn't work. And you take the stuff that worked and you amplify that and you take the stuff that didn't work and you deamplify that and you try it again and you try it again and you try it again. And that's, I think we're, what I love about everything is we have this communication going, we have this conversation and we're not done. Like we're still figuring it out. I do. I agree. We're, you know, we're better than we were 50 years ago. I think we're way better than we were a hundred years ago and we'll, we'll just get closer. Well, let's, let's, let's hope that the, you know, the center can hold <laughs> so that we keep tinkering. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I will say it. I, I'll say it here. It's going to hold. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, so, and I, you know, just by way of, of sort of bookending that, I guess for me, like the last um, aha moment was um, in the Robert Frank uh, interview where he was talking about how so much of the, you know, competitive energy that we have collectively can get turned into something that's socially destructive. And so like, you know, again, as somebody who studied a whole lot for the GRE um, back in the day, you know, this kind of an arms race of what you have to do just to keep up with other people. And again, you know, for me also from a competitive sport background that you start throwing doping into it. One person starts doping, two people start doping. And then basically if you want to be on the podium, you have to start doping. So it's like, we're kind of trying to one up each other. And that ultimately like some of that is just creating a lot of destructive waste, especially when we do it kind of in a material context. And I, I have a, I have a child that's applying to college and in the process of college applications, my wife and I get into this. We talk, you know, I think Eli's incredible. I think he's, you know, he's a great musician. He's got stuff that he's putting out there. He, his heart's in the right place. He's smart. He gets good grades. He actually has a job. He's worked for probably three years at this job. So he, you know, he's a captain of a side. So he's an incredible kid. But when you look at the people that are applying and you talk to his peer group and see who's applying to college, all that's true of all of them. And you know, they've also started a nonprofit and they've, they've written a book and they've, you know, they, they host a podcast. And, and so they've all, they've, they've all done all this stuff because they want to get into the best colleges. And I'm just like, what happened being a kid? Like what happened to, you know, li- you know, just, just living your best life. What, what, what happened to that? Now it's like all the competition all the time. And that, you know, you look forward to people that graduate, can't get a job. The economy is different. The way the guy standing was talking about it. Um, and the promise of all of this work isn't there for everyone that graduates. And so you get a lot of a lot of people that are upset by that. You get a lot of blowback. You get a lot of other problems that, that come out of it. Whereas if we just kind of, yep, we're going to live 80, 90 years. The first 20, 30 years are, are such and such. The next 20, 30 years. Are, and just kind of lived our lives instead of this constant competition. There'd be less stress. There'd be less. And then that leads me right back. Well, that's why we need a basic income. That's why, you know, there's, it's it's a very interesting um, the, the way Robert Franks uh, and Guy Standing's information or conversations work together were just, for me, incredible. And I don't know if you remember this. We we took when we talked to um, Knowlton and Hedges, we actually took. Hey, they were asking for feedback. Remember, they said uh, these are all great ideas, but you know how do, how else can we solve this? And they say that in their book a few four three four times. And we both fed them the stuff that we learned from Guy Standing and Robert Frank. And they were like, oh, that's great ideas, right? So we have a lot of this stuff. We should just communicate more about it, bring it together. So did you have any, um, I mean, I just, you know, selfishly described my aha moments. Did you have any major aha moments? I'm sure you did. Well, yeah, yeah. So I I, I mean, I agree with the, with the Guy Standing stuff. Um, and so I never, the, the one that stood out for me, there's two that stood out for me. One that stood out for me was with Robert Frank and with the introduction of the uh, progressive consumption tax. And so, I, you know, I think about our income tax and, and I've heard um, conservative commentators and economists say things like, you don't tax the thing you want more of, you tax the thing you want less of, right? If you, uh, the higher the price the thing gets, the less of it you're going to buy, right? So if, if you tax income, that's an incentive to, to earn less. Um, if you don't tax consumption, then that's a that's a that's a an, an incentive to consume more. 
So it's a, it's an interesting thing to say, what if we had a progressive consumption tax instead of a progressive income tax? And I hadn't really thought about it. And I didn't think it would actually work because we don't consume enough. But then he kind of explained how it works. And he explained that, you know, if you've got somebody that buys a $2 million house and puts on a $2 million addition, what if we tax the addition at 200%? Like it's not, we're not capped as you are in income to 100%. You can, you can cap that much higher and actually really tax massive consumption in a way that makes incredible sense. So you basically set your, set your level of um, federal revenue desired. And then, you know, what is consumption? And yes, you have to recognize that if you tax consumption in this way, you'll get less consumption, probably a good thing. Um, uh, and so it has to vary based on, you know, some other elements. But I, I thought that idea uh, as, a, as a potential replacement for uh, a progressive income tax made a ton of sense. Um, you know, those people that can consume a lot more, good for them right? That's fantastic. Well done. You've been very successful, um, but we're going we're gonna to tax that additional consumption and we're going to actually share that. That's the source of redistribution. I thought that was fantastic. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, as you were kind of talking, because for some reason that like idea really didn't hit home to me the same way. And maybe it's because our tax system, while we are very taxed in Canada, I feel like it's more simple than in the U.S. Um, when you have a business, obviously you have an accountant, but most people just do their own taxes. So uh, maybe it's that our tax code is a little bit simpler and like we already have a pretty, I mean, we already have like a sales tax, right, of like 15% where I live. So that's pretty substantial. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder, and I guess like ultimately maybe this is like kind of the, the the question, the answer is in the question. But, you know, in a lot of societies, I know that when luxuries become more expensive, people buy more of them because it becomes a social status kind of a bragging rights, you know? And so like, if you know that, let's say a $50,000 wedding is taxed at 400% and it actually costs $200,000, well, then it becomes that much more incentive for people to throw these like huge ostentatious things just to prove that they can. You know what you'd say in that in that circumstance? You'd, you'd be like, "Fantastic!" Yeah, good for the state. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. great, right? We have more to read. You you do do what you want. I mean, good job. You earned a lot of money. Fantastic, great for you. You want to throw this massive party, and it's going to cost you four hundred thousand dollars. I think what you end up with is is the difficulty of tracking the actual expenses. Like, how much was that? Well, do we we didn't count the caterer? Like, you know that that kind of stuff is you know how do you hide that? But there's. Yeah. Actually, he he actually answered that question. Now that I, now that I'm remembering back, he actually talked about how we look at we look at um, income, net income, income spending. You can actually just do some sp- subtraction and get to that, and there'd probably be some some hiding and some attempts. But I think you could you could resolve that. I I, I love that idea. I just I just love it. Um, the second thing, or another thing that I that I got out of it, and this was uh, I think this was Efoso. Yeah, talking about philanthropy. And how you, you, you go into um, a place where there's poverty. And, and I think his words were, you're smacked with lack. Uh, you, and and as, as a wealthy country, as a wealthy person from a wealthy country, you go in and you see this lack of education, lack of health care, lack of whatever. And you say, well, I'm going to solve for that, that problem. And then you start a nonprofit and you raise some money. Maybe you get mosquito nets to solve the malaria problem. And then you deliver those mosquito nets. And, and look at that. You saved this many lives. But there's still mosquitoes. They're still breeding. They're still going to create you know, more uh, malaria in the neighboring community. right? You haven't, under, you haven't solved for the underlying problems. Um, but you can actually go back to your investors, your donors, and say, hey, we successfully saved all these people in this community because we, we delivered them these mosquito nets. And how great is that? 
and this idea of of creating instead of the push, you know, we're going to push our solutions onto you, um, creating the pull. Go in there and say, what do you need? Let's make that happen, and then and then build from the ground up. You're resolving all kinds of issues by by dealing with underlying um, concerns and building a market. I don't remember what I don't remember the exact words they used, but you're basically building. Um, it was it was a market orientation uh, to solve the issues. It was opening. I think the the, the way they said it was um, opening markets or like creating markets. And like to me, you know, if if anybody this season. Um, offered like a defense of, of capitalism in a way, I feel like that was really where it was because, you know, I guess uh, in our societies where things are almost over-commercialized, we uh, neglect the development scenario where things are, needs are underserved. And, you know, like I think, um, you know, in, in reading about uh, what happened in Afghanistan, like if you look at the, into the economics of what was going on there in terms of all the nonprofit cash just creating crazy inflation and actually making it that a lot of the local people didn't even work, right? Like basically creates like a handout society. And ultimately, like there's a risk of too much charity, which is that you don't allow, you know, this kind of market ethic to take over and to like solve for the real problems in a way that makes those people self-starters, right? And so like, and we're kind of going around in the circ- in a circle with this, um, you know, have the mar- have markets become corrupt, and at what level are they useful? But I think if you know, Afosa makes a very good argument, at least in the development context, that like this this um, practice of opening markets for certain things, be it you know for healthcare or for things that solve for like very typical problems that people have. I think I think he makes a good a good case for it anyway. And one of the examples I don't remember the specific product, but it was like. I, I don't remember. It was like noodles. Like we, like we needed. We, there was a food something, and he talked about noodles. And in in the in the in the manufacturing of the noodles, we needed roads to deliver stuff with trucks, and we needed we needed health infrastructure for the people that are working on site. And and so so there was this process of I think it was like market creating innovations because you because the goal was to deliver noodles. And I, I'm sure I'm getting that wrong, but it, because the goal was deliver, to deliver noodles, more noodles, more efficiently to more people to solve more need, all these other things lined up to solve underneath it. And I, and I, I love what you did because we, we talk about, um, you know, Guy and Robert and all the issues with, uh, with capitalism. And yet Efoso is here saying, yeah, but um, it actually works at this level. We just have to, and I think Robert and uh, Robert Frank and um, um, Guy Standing would both say it does work to a point and then you have to do some management of it. So I don't know, Jonathan, did you have any other concluding words or any other um, sort of things that you wanted to add to bookend our recap of season two? I think there's there's one other thing to talk about, and, and that's, that's, you know, we put this in the context of the podcast, and I think that we sort of just happened to go down the path of talking to economists and, and get here. Um, and I know that when we started talking originally, it was like, how do we help people be more successful on an individual basis? And now we kind of did this big global macro conversation. That's a totally different thing. And we went to this, we went sideways. So how do you think that this reflects back on the individual making the decisions on the ground? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a great question because I think it's one of those situations where you start pulling on a thread in the sweater and then all of a sudden, like 
half the sweater is gone, right? And like, I think our motivations, you know, when we started this podcast, like if I can resurrect it with something like, um, you know, we both see how the narratives of success and like these uh, sort of self-help narrative of how to better yourself, like the impact that has had on both of our lives and the fact that it's like allowed us to you know succeed at the levels that we've succeeded at and I think we were both looking for a way to kind of rehabilitate that in the face of a lot of bad press that like success and wealth is getting and like you said I mean I think we've gone down a completely different path but I think that it's a path that needed to be gone down and you know without throwing out that you know the idea that the individual does have the part to play in terms of bettering themselves I think it's also you know if we want to bring the mindfulness into it I think there's a way in which we have to be the fish has to become aware of the water and I feel like we're or shall I say the frog has to become aware of the water (laughs) well said I actually don't think maybe was that I think that was cut out of that episode I'm not sure no no I don't think it was you retained it okay I think you were editing that one Thank you for that. Yep. I, 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 yep. I'm in there. <laughs> well, maybe season three is the time when Terry gets punched in the face. So we'll see. Yeah. I doubt, I doubt it. Terry's pretty clean. Jonathan's pretty open to being punched in the face. So. <laughs> Foot in mouth, regular basis. Um, but I'll own it. Uh, you know, I had it coming. Uh, so what do you think about next season? I think that we're going to have to do a cliffhanger and leave that for, epi- for the, the second section of the recap. Beautiful. Any way that you want to, do you want to do anything to wrap this one up? No, I think. Or did you just? I did just. (laughs) Well done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. If you enjoyed this content, please subscribe, share, and just let us know. Send us some feedback and make sure that you tune in next week to find out what we're going to be talking about in season three.